first question. What do you do, and, and whoever wants to jump in here, I, I, I don't have any specific questions that are answered, you know, ask this of Don or, or what have you. Um, but you're not allowed to sit back and let the other guys answer, Fred. Okay? What do you do if you are easily frustrated by those you lead? That was the question. What do, what do you do if you are easily frustrated by those you lead? Who wants that one? Well, I, I think you know, part of it obviously is you have to examine your heart first. I mean, is there an obvious sin issue with you that has to be addressed? And obviously you have to repent, confess it, forsake it, deal mm -hmm. with it. But if then there's a legitimate problem on their part that they're not living biblically mm. and um, they need to be confronted. Mm. Um, you know, I guess probably the, e the, the important word there is easily. And um, is it a character problem on your part that you have to deal with or is it a sin problem on their part that they have to deal with? I'm thinking, when are you not easily frustrated? I mean, is anybody here not easily frustrated with it? I think that's just the whole nature of human relationship. And I mean, I totally agree, Don, but so often it's, it has very little to do with the people as much as it has to do with, with me. And I've just completely lost sight of my whole reason for being and purpose here. And... Um, that is, uh, well, I thought, Josh, at last session, you know, what, what you covered there just spoke to such the heart of this. And so um, when, my, when my eyes aren't on the cross, I'm going to, no matter what, I'm easily, I'm easily frustrated on 696. I'm easily frustrated, you know, with the dandelions in my neighbor's yard. I'm easily frustrated with dirt on my car. I'm easily, I'm easily frustrated when, you know, my goal is James 4, when I'm, when I'm not going after what God... So, what do you do when you're easily frustrated, man? Just Well, they might have a CD copy. There's a really good session this morning <clears throat> that... Uh... I skipped that patience one, you know? <laughs> What advice can you give to a young man who's just engaged in planning to be married soon in light of the, in, in light of the conference, conference theme? What Where advice can you guy? give to a young man <laughs> who is just engaged? Hey, stand in up, stand up, stand up. Let's give him a round of applause. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and first of all, I want to Hold say, on a second. So much for the promise of anonymity, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Bob's over too. Well, in in the one session, I mentioned the fact that one of the challenges of being a leader today is that we don't have leaders. We have everybody who just wants to be so passive, and so I think part of that is seen in how long guys are taking 
to get married. And so when a guy says, and when a guy makes a commitment and says, I want you to be my wife, I'm going after you, I'm applauding that, I'm cheering that. So mm. brother, we, we applaud that. Mm. And uh, that, that's leadership that you're doing right there. Mm. So. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, states that several hundred years ago, the idea was if you really want to be holy, join a monastery. And Gary Thomas says, no, if you really want to be holy, get married. Because nothing will reveal your selfishness than marriage and having kids later. So um, that would be a good book to read in preparation, I think, for marriage. Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. Uh, I would just recommend two things that are really just one thing. Um, there's a book back in the book, uh, in, in the book room by Gary and Betsy Rikushi, and it's called Love That Lasts. It's white and has a picture of a knot on the front. Uh, get and read that book. That's thing one. Thing two is, is really subsumed in that, or that's subsumed in thing two. Read books on the cross. In that book, Gary Rikushi says, the role of a husband does not begin at the altar, it begins at the atonement. And he's right. And I only have one thing to say. I got one string I play all the time. Learn the gospel, learn it well. It'll transform everything. So read books, yes, on marriage, including sacred marriage and love that lasts. And then read books just on the cross, and it will change you. And there are several. What specific areas of criticism, I'm sorry, there was one that was specific to Bob. What specific areas of criticism do you face the most? Be personal and specific. <laughs> Probably it has to do with um, when you're Monday morning quarterbacking, the way in which you handle the situation. Um, no matter, it seems what I do in trying to step in and help a situation, when you roll up your sleeves and you get involved in people's lives, you will inevitably be accused of not handling that situation right. You could have handled that better. And that criticism is particularly stinging um, because you're choosing to get involved. You're choosing to just get your, your vulnerable in trying to get next to that person's life and help them out. And then to have it you know, thrown back in your face that, you know what, you didn't handle that right. That's hard to hear. But the truth is, there's always truth to that. I could always improve in how I handled the situation. And when you get, you know, I, I, and I, that's why I appreciate that James 4 passage so much because, all right, where does that war come from? Where does that fighting come from? Doggone it, don't you, don't you appreciate the fact that I'm trying to get involved in your life? But why is that war? Because 
you know, what am I wanting at that moment? I want your affirmation and your respect and your appreciation that I, choo that I chose to get involved in your life. And what am I getting? I'm getting you saying, I didn't handle it right. How dare you? When the issue is, you know what? I probably didn't handle it right. And I could improve on that. Somebody want to follow that up? How do you deal with the sin of slothfulness and the desire for ease? Where's that brother who just got engaged? Get married. <laughs> I don't do anything. <laughs> that, that's why we're pastors. <laughs> we only work one day a week. Fred, rescue us here, will you? How, how do you deal with the sin of slothfulness and the desire for ease? What word of hope do you offer a brother that struggles with that? I think what Josh said at the end of the last message, as far as personal accountability, I mean, having people in our life who, not just, you know, a person who nags us to do something that they want done, but a person who encourages us and motivates us, just like in any other area of life, um, who will come alongside of us and um, rebuke us when we need to be rebuked and encourage us and, and, and even help us um, by you know, calling us and asking us to help them with a project or whatever. I think by, remind, by reminding ourselves that um, progressive sanctification comes through suffering and, and to realize that there's a purpose in pain and that um, I think all of us would probably admit that the greatest times of spiritual progress we've made in our lives have been in difficult times, not in times of ease. This particular question is, is a real challenge to me because, I mean, that's just, I, I really would like to have an easy life. And so what I, what I have to do is I can't hold myself accountable on that. It, that's just not going to work. And so when I make goals for things, I have to make them public. So I will at times tell the whole congregation here's what I'm going to do this year. And I don't do that. Um, I do that for accountability. Um, I am also very, very blessed with a wife who has a high level of energy and a high level of expectation for me. And she is a real blessing to me in that regard. And so she is really good at encouraging me in that. So I would encourage whoever asked that question, that make, you know, in, in times like this, it's a time in which God tends to raise the bar in your life. And you're looking at, you know what, there's more books that I could be reading, there's more things that I could be doing, there's more spiritual disciplines that I could be cultivating in my life. And one of the things that you need to do is steward this conference, not let 
these desires and these things slip through your fingers. How, how do you do that? Then you find a brother who's going to hold you accountable to the things that you have determined, here's what I'm going to do. And if you're part of a small group, that is such a gift to you from God. Let that group know this is what you, you are going to do so that these other brothers and sisters can speak and do your heart about that. Don, I think you mentioned, excuse me, mentioned the word nagging. And there's a question that says, how does one differentiate nagging from admonition and how should you respond to nagging? You used the term, brother. I did? No, I Don, did. You, <clears throat> you get to answer it. How do you determine the difference? Well, I think sometimes, I'm, you know nagging because of the motive. I think you know nagging sometimes because of the termination. It just goes on, it just never stops. Um, <clears throat> and as far as accountability goes, if, if someone has asked me to hold them accountable, and I do, and they don't respond to that, then after a time, I have to say, I'm done because now it's nagging. And I'm, I'm not gonna nag. The guy asked me for help, and I've been helping him, but now I'm gonna stop, because it has crossed the line from accountability into that nagging. So how do you determine that? I'm not sure that I necessarily know a formula, but mm -hmm. I think if you're tender-hearted and sensitive to the Lord's leading in your life, you know when you're becoming a nag. I mean, you obviously know when someone else is nagging you. So, uh, I'm not sure if the question means how do you tell when someone speaking to you is nagging or admonishing? And if that's the thrust of the question, at the end of the day, um, it might not matter. Either way, God's calling for change in your life. Um, but if the question, as, as Bob spoke to, you know, when people criticize, there's always some truth in it. There's always something that I can do better. But if the question is, how can I tell when I'm nagging or when I'm admonishing? Uh, that's a question I've asked myself. You know, young guys I'm mentoring. Am I nagging by asking week after week after week? And I've come to see that nagging in me is a form of unbelief. It's a form that, it's, it's, a, it's an expression of my heart saying, I can't trust the Holy Spirit to use the word and to use words I've said prior. I have to keep being the Holy Spirit and say it again and say it again. And that's unbelief. And uh, admonition is firmly rooted in the belief that if I speak here, God will use this to grow this person in grace. Of the leadership material available, what are red flags to warn us of it being worldly wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. In other words, of the leadership material available out there, if you go into a bookstore or whatever, what are the red flags to warn us of bad ones? Well, I've read a lot over the last few months, and a lot is bad. I'll just say that. That's my estimation. Um, practically helpful at some level, but Again, I got one string, I got one filter, 
gauge it by the gospel. Would this work without the gospel? Or maybe a better question is, does this work because of the gospel? And if it's just, yeah, it's just good common sense for you to be, mm, I don't know, for example, Jim Collins in Good to Great does suggest that humility is a good leadership quality. Well, connect that to the gospel. If you can connect it to the gospel, then in that respect it might be helpful. But full bore, yeah, I don't know that you would want to embrace that wholesale because it's not rooted in the gospel. So just look for that. That, that, that would at least be a place that I would suggest you start. Most of what I've read on leadership from a more of a secular standpoint or even that has got a, a, a Christian wrapper to it is how can you get other people to do what you want them to do? Yes. Or how can you um, coerce enough people to accomplish your goals? That is not gospel-centered leadership. That is man-centered leadership. <clears throat> And gospel-centered leadership is so antithetical to that. It has nothing to do with trying to convince people of your goals and getting them to do what you want them to do. It's serving them and helping, um, even in a marriage context, your responsibility as a husband is for your wife to get to the end of her life and look just like Jesus. That's your job. That is your primary job for her, to serve her in that capacity. It is not for you to get her to make your world a better place and a happier place and to keep everything calm at home. You are there to help her look just like Jesus. You don't get that in so many of um, I mean, I'll come right out and say, you, you referenced Maxwell's 21 irref Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And while there's some humorous stuff in there, the gospel is lost in that book. And so th those would be the kinds of works I would just, I just, I, I'd stay away from. They're just not helpful. I'm not a reader. It's difficult for me. How does that affect my ability to lead, if at all? All of us have different levels of, of reading abilities. But I think if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to read and you're going to have to strive at it and you will improve over time. Of course, reading God's word is, is the first priority. But I think um, we are such a media-saturated culture that we have um, become slothful at the discipline of reading. And I, I wouldn't like start out with large projects, you know, um, you know, reading books this thick, but some of those, um, and I don't, I'm not demeaning these books, but the C.J. Mahaney books that are, they're an easy read, but to read it, maybe you have to read it twice. Um, but to dis pick, pick a book and then just discipline yourself to finish it and maybe read it with somebody else as an accountability partner and, and talk about it and, and pray over it. I think, too, though, I, I don't want to confuse what you were saying about 
media saturation because there are good books available on audio. Mm -hmm. and, and if the actual task of reading, I mean, I, I have a son who's dyslexic. So for him, reading is, is virtually impossible at times. So, I mean, but he's going to college. And so we read the chapter to him and he can get an A on the test. But if he has to read it, he'll flunk. So listening to good books is certainly an option. I think what you were talking about was we just expose ourselves to frivolous media because we can't read. But there's still, you know, things out there that can help us. So, you know, tap into that. There's, there's uh, websites where you can go that specialize in Christian books on CD or whatever. I would say is one of those would be uh, ninemarks.org, uh, the number nine, then M-A-R-K-S.org. And every month there are at least a new interview that uh, Mark Dever does with various ch um, church leaders. And a con whole conversation, you can download it, you can just click it, you can listen to it, you can sign up to have that sent to you as a CD. And so those kinds of things, interviews, conversations, books that are on CD, if, if the actual reading is difficult, you can still get exposed to so many resources that are good for your heart. Yeah, obviously we're agreed <clears throat> that leadership requires reading. And I just wanna, I wanna ratchet that up a little bit and, and, and encourage you to be ruthless with your reluctance to read. I don't think that's a benign issue in our lives. When God chose to reveal himself to us, he did it in a book. Amen. And presumably, he could have waited until DVD technology was available, and he didn't. He gave us words, brothers. And as Don said, they need to get in your head and in your heart, whether they're audible or visible. But propositions need to get in our hearts. Linear thought that's unambiguous and clear. We must be shaped by words because when Jesus came, he was the word. When I was a youth pastor in uh, Kentucky, I had a lady in my youth group, one of my youth team members, who had whatever that phobia is of crowds. I don't know what it is. I don't know the name for it. But uh, that made her extremely reluctant to join with the worshiping community on Sunday morning. And I think wise leadership in that case deals gently with her and her fears, but tries to encourage her to overcome them because there's something about the nature of the Christian life that requires community. It doesn't always have to take the mass form, but we must be with people. We must overcome that fear. And I would suggest that's analogous to a reluctance to read. There's something about the Christian life that means we need to read. We have to get propositions in our heads to be strong believers. I just want to suggest that to you. I don't have verses to put under that, but I want to suggest it to you as what I think matches a biblical worldview. Well, I, I do think there are some, particularly in the second Timothy, when Paul says uh, to Timothy, when you come bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, that was his books. And, and especially the parchments, which would be the scriptures. 
And so there at the end of his life, he's in prison and he's asking for the books. And I think if the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, is asking for his library to come to him, um, I do think that, that it, it, it speaks to the importance that we are exposing ourselves to, to good stuff. The, the question or your answer about ninemarks.org uh, reminded me the, there, there was a question about the, these sessions. They will be uh, on the website, fellowshipinthegospel.com. And because I know nothing about how to do that, I can't tell you how long that's going to take. But that is going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So other brothers that couldn't make it can certainly read those. We're also going to build a resources page that has links to Nine Marks and some other uh, websites uh, and web resources. So we'll be looking for that. <clears throat> this one says, I tend to be a control freak. I usually end up delegating and trying to help others use their gifts, but then invariably become unhappy with their performance and redo what I had assigned them. What advice can you offer? Read a book. <laughs> Yeah, then Josh said, rewrite it better. <laughs> Listen, this is my question, so I want it answered. <laughs> so much for anonymity, huh? <laughs> I think you've got to go back to what's your goal? Is your goal to get that job accomplished perfectly in your mind or is your goal to help the people who are involved in the project? And so if, if, if your goal is, is not the people and it's the project for the people, then yeah, you, you can control freak and step on people and move them out of the way. Um, but if you keep in mind, it's the people that you're there to serve and to help elevate them. I mean, when, when Christ sent out the disciples two by two, even as a training session, could he have done that better than them? Oh, my word. Yes. But it wasn't, he, he was, that was all part of that, that process. And uh, one, another thing I appreciated that, that Josh had to say is that all of our leadership is just so temporary. We're just taking whatever we are taking care of, we're just doing it for the next guy. Whatever job you have, ministry you have, you're just, you're just, you're just taking care of it for the, to hand it off to the next guy anyway. Amen. And so you're not going to be around to, so you, so with that in mind, you end up taking your hands off more and more of those control type issues and just encouraging and helping those that you have entrusted and, and you just try to blow wind into their sails so they go. Being one who struggles with being a control freak, I have, I, I've recognized in my life, and, and this has been a, a help, is that it is a subtle form of pride that it's Fred saying that he could do it better. And um, so when those tendencies come over me to, to just acknowledge, Lord, thank you for revealing 
pride in my heart, and um, I renounce that. Thank you. Some people are harder to forgive than others. I try, but often cannot bring myself to love them the way I ought. What should I do? I think, again, one has to look at the individual that the individual before me is an image bearer, whether they're lost or whether they're regenerate. They are an image bearer of God. And so, therefore, I am to be respectful and I'm to, to love the, great, commission, or the uh, great commandment to love God, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so the fact of being an image bearer and then just asking Christ to love them through us, that they are of worth to God, that, you know, that God loves them. And um, Josh alluded to this as well as far as, you know, um, the lowly and the great, and we have all these different levels of importance, but to, um, to look upon them, you know, through the eyes of Christ. I would suggest that you do something for them, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So if there's a person that's just driving you crazy and you just find, it, it, again, it's just so counterintuitive, to, to what the world says, but but for God so loved the world, He gave, and so buy him a gift card to somewhere. Buy him a gift card to Starbucks, and uh, just just give it to him. Even if you want to do it anonymously, but you're 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 forcing your heart. It's an act of faith. You are you are you are you are you are forcing to invest your heart into that person, seeking their good, and. I think God will often use that to just change your, your affections toward that person. Following up what Bob said, the basis of, of, yes, of last night's breakout session on forgiveness, Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So you're struggling with forgiving someone, be kind and compassionate to them. Look for practical things that that you can do to benefit them, to show kindness to them. Now, if you receive 25 gift cards to Starbucks this next week, then (laughs) maybe you need to be asking questions from other friends, you know. Somebody sends you to Mexico for vacation. (laughs) You just won. One brother asked this question, how, how does our different denominations affect our view and practice of the gospel, especially in service and church structure? Let me read it one more time. How does our different denominations affect our view and practice of the gospel, especially in service and church structure? Are we talking about um, amongst us? Because I think we probably all are. I would say outs- beyond these outs- walls. Beyond yeah. I don't know if this is exactly on point, but one 
One central truth of the gospel is that the office of priest in the Old Testament that was reserved for that special few is spread out over the people of God in every case now. And um, I'll just play my hand in, in terms of church polity. Baptists have been the one that have strongly upheld the priesthood of all believers, which is an aspect of the gospel. And it's reflected in church structure in congregationalism that the congregation holds the emergency break on church uh, matters, not, you know, every little pedestrian thing like the copy machine lease and, and stuff like that, but um, we see congregationalism reflected throughout the New Testament, and I think that's a reflection of the priesthood of believers, which is, and uh, what's the word, an effect of the gospel. So I would at least throw that out. I'm not sure if that's quite on point. Of, of, the, of the question. But I think congregationalism better reflects at least that aspect of the gospel. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree that the, the gospel has turned in, in the new covenant. We are the one holy nation. We, we are a kingdom of priests. And so leadership is not, um, I'll tell you what to believe and you believe the church. Um, and that salvation is not found within the church, that in the New Testament, in, in, the, in the true New Testament church, the, it is the entire congregation's responsibility to guard the treasure of the gospel and live in light of the gospel. And the elders and leaders of the church, um, while they have a direct responsibility to guard the doctrine, to provide the direction of the church, and to take care of the discipline of the church. They are at the same time accountable to the congregation, and the best shepherds are those that smell like sheep. They're not, they're not in the boardroom hidden from the congregation. They're part of living with and amongst the congregation. So I think that would be just an aspect of the gospel that is seen. I know I shouldn't be, but I'm so often impatient with my children. What help can you offer me? Um, I think what Fred just said from Ephesians 4.32, um, <clears throat> why has God entrusted our children to us? And what Bob said a moment ago about um, our wife's sanctification. Why has God given me the wife that he has, the children that he has? I mean, God has a bigger, bigger agenda um, than just their performing to my expectations. So, you know, having that bigger picture of, you know, what is it that God is trying to accomplish in their life and why has God allowed me to be their father or me to be her wife? Um, Fred recommended a book to me uh, some time ago, uh, When Sinners Say I Do. And it was the point, also the same point of the book that you mentioned at that point about sanctification. So <clears throat> I think one other thing about our patience or impatience with, with our children, for instance, is we want them to be perfect. 
But our, our pursuit of perfection is not necessarily what God is looking for in their sanctification. Because our pursuit of our children's perfection is we don't want them to embarrass us. And that's not necessarily what God's agenda is there. And, and the thing is, our children are going to embarrass us. And, and, and um, if, if I'm there when Bob's kids embarrass him, or he's there when my kids embarrass me, I mean, I know that that's going to happen. He knows that that's going to happen. And the thing is, I don't have to think less of him or he of me because that's what I'm concerned about. I want my kids to perform because I don't want him to think I'm a bad father. And the fact is, in our church, we know. I know your kids are sinners, and you know my kids are sinners, so we know that sinners are going to do what sinners do. So, you know, when, when our kids embarrass us, you know, everyone else doesn't have to cover their mouth and point. It's like, we know this is going to happen. Let's not be surprised. Let's not be disappointed. Let's just deal with it. So... Um, our, the thing is, another part of this is, we don't, we, our culture has become obsessed with success that failure is no longer a teaching tool. And so my kids can't fail because if they fail, then they won't get the scholarship or they won't get the recognition or whatever. And, you know, I just, just had a parents' meeting with the parents of the kids who <clears throat> soccer team I coach, and I said, you know, to this, to some of them, that I don't mind losing. I don't mind losing every game if we'll learn from it. And one of the parents is here, <laughs> sitting and listening. He's heard me say that. I don't mind. I don't mind if the boys lose. We'll lose when they're 10 so that they'll be better prepared for the game when they're older. And same thing with our kids. When our wives are pregnant, we, we pray for, Lord, just give me a normal child. And then after the birth, normal's never good enough. Hmm. We always want it per perfect. But I think when our children, when, when we are impatient with our children, it should be... A, a light on our dashboard saying that an idol has become uh, prominent in our hearts. Um, Josh alluded to James 4, and I think it's David Tripp that states, how do I know when a desire, a good desire, has become an idol? When I sin to get it, or when I sin when I don't get it. And that's an indication that this that whatever this area is, that this has become not a desire, but now it's a demand, and it's become an idol of my heart. So God uses our children's failures or, or problems to reveal our sin in our, in our own life that we might deal with. Piggybacking on that, Fred, when I, when I get angry, when I get exasperated or frustrated, it's because always there's something that I want that I can't have. And that's, I think, what you're talking about when that light on the dashboard comes up, and that, okay, your kids are 
fighting or something's going on and you are exasperated. So it's a great time to, to you know, really cultivate that as a discipline in your own life to say, okay, what, Bob, what do you want right now that you can't have? And, you know, I want an unbothered life. I want my kids to be perfect. I don't want them to argue or whatever. Or what I often find out is what I get the most angry about in my kids is when they're acting just like me. When, when they are... But you blame it on Kathy. Well, yeah. You say they're acting just <laughs> like their mother, which you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, that's when I really, when, when they're being, uh, when, they're, when they're just revealing my own weaknesses, it is such a, a gift from God if I'll take it as that and, and do my own repenting before I can sit down and even begin to correct them. I remember Fred telling me years ago, they were school shopping, and Fred's mom was there. And one of the kids wanted to pick out some shoes that grandma didn't like. You remember that? Yeah, girls. And, uh, and grandma said, Fred, you're not going to let them buy those shoes. And Fred said something to me that has stuck with me as a parent, is that <clears throat> I'm going to pick which hills I'm going to die on. And um, the fact is, you know, with our kids, we can be on them about everything because they are kids. They haven't reached a level of maturity, either physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. And I think we have to be careful and, and let them be kids and let them make decisions like shoes that we wouldn't necessarily agree with, but it's we don't need to just be on them all the time. They were ugly shoes. It was, remember when years ago when the girls wore these like combat boot type shoes, you know, they were really popular and our girls went to a Christian school that demanded that they wear dresses. So they were wearing these like combat boots with these dresses. It was hideous. But it was just like, you know, this, I, if that's what they want to wear and look hideous, that's fine, you know? I, I'm not sure how to rescue this answer of combat shoes and dresses. So I'm just going to redirect our focus. <laughs> Thank you, men, for, for your uh, devotion to Jesus and his church Amen. by what you've done here today. Um, just in front of Bob, down on the floor here, uh, a, a small handful of guys about, I don't know, three or four years ago, just sat in a little circle and prayed that God would develop a men's ministry here. And uh, so I'm just so grateful to God in his mercy to bring this conference about. And I pray that men, as you leave, you will forget all of our names. You'll say those were real nice guys, but wasn't Jesus great that weekend we were there? So Mike, you come. And as Mike's coming, he's, gonna, he's one of the guys that prayed in this little circle with me. And he's going to close our service in prayer. And um, there's still some time left to get back in the bookstore, finish buying those books, um, trade phone numbers and email addresses. And I pray that, um, that your new friendships here would continue as you fellowship in the gospel. Thank you. I 